0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. All right, turn to Acts chapter two. We're going to start in verse start in verse 36. "Let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, "What shall we do?" And Peter said to them, "Repent." And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. Did you catch that part? Just like I was just praying, right? The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' For your word, we thank you that it is truth. Lord, I pray that today we would hear from you. I pray, God, that you would impart truth into our hearts today, God. That we would not just hear it, but we would receive it, and we would act on it. I pray for the other churches in O'Fallon, God, as they're having their services today that you'd be honored and glorified in their services as well, that the preaching of your word would go forth um, throughout O'Fallon, that um, churches would be salt and light um, to the community around them, to this dying world. Lord, we pray you would continue to be here with us. Help us to set aside any distractions and now focus on you and your word. Amen. Last week we talked about the trio of justice. Do you remember what those three categories of people that we talked about were? All right, that's right, the pastor's wife. Good job. (laughs) So the orphan, also referred to as the fatherless, the widow... And then the sojourner, or sometimes called the um, alien or the foreigner. Those are the three that we looked at in regards to go in service. Now, during the time of Israel, the gods of the surrounding pagan religions identified primarily with what class of people do you think? The foreign gods of the other of the other surrounding nations. The rich. The rich. Yep, the rich, the upper class. Uh, why would that be? Is they're the ones that give the money to build the temples. And they give the generous offerings. So those religions were set up so the rich felt honored and special. They could earn favor with their gods. But here's what we saw last week. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, gives instructions so that everyone can participate. Everyone can participate in all areas of the temple sacrifices, even if that person was not just poor, but extremely poor. Now think about that. If the sacrifice required a lamb, and you didn't have one to sacrifice, what would you do? Well, normally you couldn't make the sacrifice. right? Just the rich, those who had the lambs, those who had the bulls could make it. But the Old Testament sacrificial system took into account that not everyone had the means by which to make the sacrifices that were set up. What did God do? He wanted people to still be able to participate in temple sacrifice. That was their worship. So he made different requirements for those with less. That's why instead of sometimes lambs, it says if you don't have that, you can offer the pigeon or the dove. This allowed all people to come before the Lord and participate in worship. Your financial position would not prevent you from worshiping the Lord and following His ways. And being rich did not earn you favor with God. Giving more would not earn you God's favor. That's the backdrop to what today we're going to see in the New Testament. Last week, we saw God's heart for the poor in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to see his heart for the poor in the New Testament. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at how the disciples were sent out by Jesus. While Jesus was still here in his earthly ministry, before he had been crucified, before he had been resurrected, while he was still doing ministry here, he actually sent out the disciples on a couple mission trips, so to speak. And he sent them out by two by two. And when they went... We saw that they went and they preached the good news, but we also saw that they ministered to physical needs. They healed people. They helped people. So they were going in service and mission. Now the question is, what did the disciples do once Jesus ascended into heaven? Because it's easy to stick to the task, right, when the boss is kind of overlooking your shoulder. But once he's gone, what happens? What do the disciples do? Will they go and preach? Yes, they need to do that. Jesus told them in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses. All over. And did they? Yes, right away in this passage we just saw, Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. He's preaching to the crowd that has gathered on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 get saved. But then look what happens. I want you to see this. A few verses later, in verse 45, it says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the message was enacted from the very beginning of the early church. The preaching goes on, but also the meeting of physical needs. Notice Who's doing the selling? They. Well, in verse 45, well, who is the they? We've got to go back to verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the entire church was participating in, in meeting the physical needs of those that needed help. What is the effect of their heart attitude in helping those that needed the help? Look, I want you to look two chapters over in Acts chapter four. Verse thirty three. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they're still doing the preaching. They're going into mission. And great grace was upon them all. And then look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse. If you're, not, if you're not careful, you can miss something here, because Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making reference to a promise given in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy. Keep your place there, but look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. Look at what it says in verse 4. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance to possess. Some versions might say there should be no poor. The point is that if the Israelites, when they took the land that God was giving them, there was going to be such abundant provision in the land that there would never be a need for there to be poor people, if the covenant community fellowshiped, worshipped, and followed God's laws the way that were required. There will be no poor among you. Here, back in Acts, Luke is making reference to that. His readers would have that verse called to their mind. They're Old Testament people. They know those scriptures. The promise was now being fulfilled. When God's church is being God's church, we see scripture after scripture after scripture fulfilled. It's not about what I have or or what's mine or what I own. It's about ministering to others. It's about helping others. It's about sharing with others. And our selfish attitude is turned into a selfless attitude. One person said it like this, The disposition of one's possessions signifies the disposition of one's heart. People say to me sometimes, you know, oh, I want to be like the New Testament church. I want to have a church like the New Testament. I want, to, I want to be just like the New Testament was. Okay, start here. Start with how the early church started. Generous. Sharing, making sure people's needs were taken care of. This is something every single person participated in in the life of the early church. All. It said all. Everyone was doing it. They were selling their possessions. All who believed were doing it. I know people, and we've got some generous people here, very generous. I know people who God has spoken to, and have done some amazing things with their money, who have been generous, beyond generous. At times, in fact, even Paul was praying it before we took the offering. He made reference to it. A lot of times we think we give out of our abundance. But that really wasn't even true of the early church. Sometimes they gave out of their lack of abundance. Paul makes mention of that regarding the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians. He says, you guys were basically dirt poor, and you still were generous, and you still gave. And I've seen people take money out of their retirement account, penalties and all, because they felt led by God to minister to someone in their need. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. I know. The economy of God does not always make sense. Giving to people from something that you earned and that you own doesn't make sense to the world, but in God's economy, it makes perfect sense. And I know people who, they drive their car, and then when they're getting ready to trade it in, they look for someone who needs a car, and instead of trading it in and get the money for that or trying to sell it, they, they give that car to that needy person. Just this generous heart regarding their possessions. Listen, because our heart overflows with gratitude towards God, we want to help others just like God helped us. Like, you realized how generous God is with us, right? Like, think about that for a second. How generous God is with us. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't just, you know, pull out his wallet and, you know, count the ones or the fives. Like, he's just given us, you know... Stacks and stacks and stacks of money when it comes to his grace. He doesn't measure it out in small little measurements of teaspoons. He gives it to us by the swimming pools. Tons and tons of grace that God pours out. How does he do that? Through his son. It is through Jesus. He came here to the earth, had a ministry, chose 12 disciples, trained them, and then was crucified. Why? Because many people did not like what he was doing. Many people were jealous of who he was. Many people didn't like that the limelight was on him. So they crucified him. But God used that. That was his plan. Why? Because we have a broken relationship with God. Because of our sin. Our sin separates us from God. Everyone here, if we're honest, we're going to say we've sinned. All right, sin is, is messing up. Sin is doing things that doesn't please God. That breaks off our fellowship with God. But God wants us to be in fellowship with him. He wants us in fellowship with him. He saw that our sin needed to be dealt with. A holy God has to require justice when wrong is done. Listen, a holy God has to require justice. If he didn't require justice, he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be holy. So he requires justice. And the justice for our sin is punishment. When you do wrong, listen to me, when you do wrong, that requires a punishment. Now sometimes the punishment can be really, really small, depending on what the wrong is. Sometimes it can be great. When you sin against a holy God... The punishment is eternal. It's an eternal punishment. God doesn't want that eternal punishment for his people. So he provides a way through the sacrifice of his son. He spills his own blood, son Son of his blood. How do I say that? Let me try that. He spills the blood of his son so that we can be Forgiven. So he spills it instead of our blood being spilled. God sends his son, the Father sends the Son, to take the place on the cross where we deserve to be. His blood was spilled. His life instead of ours. So how do we how do we well, great, we know that maybe intellectually. We assent to that. We know he died on the cross. Even atheists actually will acknowledge there was Jesus. He died on the cross. And the question becomes, well, what what does that mean for us? Is that just a little historical side note from 2,000 years ago? Or does that have an impact for today? Well, he died and he was placed in the tomb. And even atheists, will agree that three days later, the tomb was empty. And even, even atheists, scholars who look into this, who don't even believe in Christianity as being true, will admit that his disciples said they appeared to him. Over 500! And they'll even admit that his own brothers, who denied him and wanted nothing to do with him, ended up believing in him, even to the point of laying down their own lives. I mean, those are pretty much undisputed facts. The question goes, why is the tomb empty? And the evidence seems overwhelming in favor because Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then he has power over the grave. He has victory. Which means... That he can give you that same victory, so to speak. You can have victory over the grave, not in your own power, but in Jesus' power. How do we get that? God says his gift to us is eternal life. It's a gift. Well, how do we receive that? God uses the instrument or the means of faith. Through faith is how we get that. We trust, we have faith, we trust that what Christ did was for us. That it was for us. And the Bible says if you put your trust in Christ, you'll be saved. You will have that eternal life. You will be forgiven of your sins. That change, if you do that, starts on the inside out. All right? starts on the inside, and then slowly works its way out. You don't clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, and he's going to clean you up. So you come as you are, right? If you're getting ready and you've been outside, sweating all day, working, I mean, you don't, you don't take a shower to get into the shower. No, the shower is what cleans you. Well, in this case, spiritually, Jesus is the one who cleans you. You don't get all cleaned up to come to Jesus. He's the one that cleans you. And he wants to do that. For each one of us here, he wants to cleanse each one of us. And that is available for all of us through faith in Jesus. So God, I mean, think about how generous that is, friends. It would have been enough if he just created this world And we just go, I mean, that's pretty nice of him to create us, right? And then we die, and okay, it's over, boom. You know, 80 years or so, that was cool. I mean, no. Like, he offers us not just 80 years, he offers us literally an eternity with him. That gift is available for each one of us. That is a very generous God. So we continue to see in other chapters of Acts the apostles' heart, the early church's heart. Turn back in Acts chapter 6. Their heart for ministering to people's needs. Verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, into the ministry of the word. Uh, so concerned were the apostles about this issue of making sure physical needs were met in regards, specifically here to the widows, that they created a new church office. Okay, up to this point, <clears throat> you really just had uh, the apostles. I mean, that was kind of an office. But in the Old Testament, there was no such office anywhere close to what we would call deacon. And most people believe, and it makes sense, that this is the institution of the office of deacon. They created a new church office. There's only two offices in the church. Today, we have the pastors and we have the deacons. And they created this new church office, this job, so to speak, to meet the physical needs. Of the people. If you look back in verse 1, at the very end it, it says the daily distribution. That Greek word is diokonia. It's the same root word in Greek for the word diakonos. Diakonia and diakonos. You can hear it, right? That's where we get our word deacon, diakonos. It's the same root word. This idea of daily distribution What were the deacons supposed to do? They were supposed to do the diaconia, the distribution. That word originally meant humble service to practical needs. Humble service to practical needs. That's really a great description for a deacon. Look at Galatians chapter 2, starting verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So, James, Cephas, he's called here, that's Peter and John. Right? The inner three of Jesus' disciples. Paul ends up meeting with them. Now, before Paul, before he got saved, was persecuting the church, even killing believers. He has a radical transformation on the Damascus Road. Sometime later, meets with James, Cephas, and John. So, we go to the Gentiles, Paul saying, they to the circumcised. Notice what verse 10 says. Only they, in this case, those three apostles, asked us to remember the poor. I mean, of all the things... The apostles could have asked Paul to do. This is the one thing. So they they make agreements. Hey, you're going to go to the Gentiles, and you're going to preach to them, and we're going to go to the Jews and keep preaching to them. So, like divide and conquer. Also, remember the poor. Remember the poor. So that was on the heart of the apostles, so much so that they see the anointing that's on Paul. They want to make sure that he understands how important that is. Look what he says at the end of verse 10. The very thing I was eager to do. He already had a heart for it. Why? I mean, his heart was already transformed by God. He saw how generous God was to him and he wanted to display that generosity to others. So he was eager to remember the poor. The early church took care of the poor, and we see it in places of Scripture, including 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look there, will you? Verse 3 says, Honor widows who are truly widows, Now that word in Greek has the idea of financial assistance tied to it. Not just honor them like, hey, great job, you know, you're still alive, you made it, all right? No, honor them, how? By helping them, by assisting them. That's really the idea with that word honor. Honor widows who are truly widows. And then he gives us a little description. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She, who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So he says, those who are truly widows, and he gives us what that definition is, if a widow still has children or grandchildren and she is in need of assistance, She is first supposed to receive that assistance from them. All right, that is the biblical setup. The family, okay, not even the church, definitely not the civil government, but the family is really the first line of defense when it comes to financial assistance. We see it here. Uh, Go on in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So notice, Paul's putting some requirements. And basically, they have to be living out their Christianity. It has to be evident in them through a series of times. Then, verse 16, he emphasizes, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. So now he kind of shifts it for the ladies to make sure they're taking care of any relatives who are widows. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. It's interesting to note, just a side note, he says, um, let them be enrolled. The church had some type of list or some sort that they kept. You had to be enrolled. Enrolled in what? Enrolled onto this list of official, truly needy widows. God wanted to make sure that faithful older ladies that didn't have a support system anymore, their husband had passed away, Maybe, for whatever reason, their children weren't around. Not even the grandchildren. He wanted to make sure that they were provided for, that they were taken care of. Notice what he says in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever that's probably one of the most straightforward in your face verses in the New Testament. And what does it revolve around? Finances. It's like if you got someone in your own family and you're not even taking care of them and helping take care of them and helping support them. I mean, Paul says it, not me, you're worse than an unbeliever. Man, that's wow. We need, it. we need to chew on that and think about that. But God puts the weight on people. He doesn't say, shove it off to the church. He's saying the exact opposite here. Shove it off to the civil government. Now, the family is the first line of defense. The family is supposed to step up. That's, that's what God wants us to do. Listen, the, the pagan world during the time of Jesus for hundreds of years before, for hundreds of years after. This concept of of generosity, of helping people, of, of showing mercy, it was regarded as a character defect. The philosophers routinely wrote against this concept of helping those that were less fortunate. They believed since... Being generous, showing mercy, having compassion involves providing unearned help or relief. It was contrary to justice. But it's not. That is part of justice. So you didn't see many people display mercy in the pagan world. What blew away the world, the unbelieving world, when Christianity burst onto the scene, was seeing this concept of generosity, of compassion, of mercy, on full display. Not just in small amounts here or small amounts there, but in large quantities. And what blew them away was it wasn't just tossing money at a problem, but it was the individuals getting involved in the lives of people and truly helping them out. So it was quality... And quantity. I mean, think about it. In the early church, like they're selling houses and fields to minister to people's needs in the church. I mean, that's sacrificial. That's sacrificial giving. That's what we're seeing in the New Testament. That blew away the unbelieving world to see that. To see the generosity. And it wasn't... Just occasional. It was constant. This opened the door for Christianity to flourish. And listen, we ourselves, we need to guard against the attitude that the pagan world had, that being generous, that having compassion and mercy is not good. Because I think we can lean there sometimes. See, people who come for help, they're messed up. But of course they're messed up. Otherwise, they wouldn't be coming to us for help. But guess what? We're messed up too. Maybe not in the same ways, but we're messed up. We're all broken, and we're all sinful. That's not to water down the gravity of their sin and their issues. But it should help put things in proper perspective. Because we want to make sure that we're not sitting up on our little perch and and looking down on them. Because that's not how God looks at us. Because we were the poor and the wretched and the miserable. We were enemies of God. And he reached down for us. He came down in the form of of a man, the God-man, to reach us. Listen, if someone is in a tough spot, it will usually be, not always, but usually be because of foolish, sinful choices. But listen, guys, that makes sense. That makes sense. Bad decisions lead to bad outcomes and put people in bad predicaments. And, and people don't need us you know, wagging their finger at them when they're hurting and coming to us. There might be a time to help them get some things in order, but we need to show grace and compassion. Does there need to be truth? Absolutely. But there needs to be tons of mercy, tons of compassion, tons of grace that we are handing out. Why? Because we're following how God handles us. Tons of grace, tons of mercy, tons of compassion. Each one of us in here, if we're honest, has done some heinous things. What was God's reaction? Did he like it? No. Was he happy with us? No. But he poured out his grace on us. He was merciful. So we are generous because God has been generous to us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what are we getting, friends? It tells us in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God has this great mercy on us. He pours it out, he pours it out, he pours it out. We need to do the same. We need to show others compassion, mercy. We need to show others who are hurting, who are needy generous spirit not just in principle or thought but in practicality we want to walk it out not just talk it but walk it not just discuss it but we want to live it alright and if we're going to live it it's going to hit us it's going to hit us in the pocketbook it's going to hit us in the bank account it's going to hit us there is a cost. There's a cost. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want to live like he lived, if we want to follow what the New Testament lays out for us, it is costly. It's costly in all areas, sacrifices all over the place, including our finances. All right, some of us, we have got a tight grip on our finances, we need to loosen it. We need to loosen it. We need to use our finances to be gracious and blessing to those who are in need. That that is clear. That is clear for us to do. This speaks to those around us. This speaks volumes to the world. Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us a great mercy. We thank you for sending your Son, for giving us life when we deserved death. Father, you've been so generous to us in so many ways. Let us be generous towards others, Father. Make our hearts tender and compassionate the truly needy. Let us not turn to blind eye. We ask, Lord, that you would use us in this area, that we wouldn't consider our possessions, our bank accounts, our own, but know that we are stewards. You've put us over it for a season, so let us be wise with it, and be gracious with it for that season. Lord, continue to grow that generosity in our hearts. Grow it in abundance. Let us display it, Lord. Not for the world to see, but display it, Lord, for you, watching our hearts. We want to be like you, Father. The world will see it, Father. Let it impact them. Use something like money that has a grip on the world. Use it, Father, for your glory. Use it to bring people to know you. Use our finances. Not their finances. Not someone else's finances, but our finances. Let us be a blessing to others, even if it's costly. We thank you that you've blessed us with so much. Many, many physical things, Lord. And many, many spiritual things. We truly have riches in the heavenlies through your son, Jesus. And we thank you. Amen.